So this, uh, these stories that we're going to look at today, the life of Jonathan, are related to friendship and loyalty, commitment. And it got me to be thinking about what are the basis that we have for friendships today. You know, the, the phrase that came up at Men's Coffee on Wednesday morning when we were looking at some of these themes and studying Jonathan was BFF. How, raise your hand if you know what a BFF is. Okay, I'm checking. Yeah, it looks like a full, the full demographic spectrum is aware of that three-letter acronym. If not, I think it's best friend forever. Sometimes I think I know what these, these you know, uh, text language acronyms mean and then I find out I'm wrong later but is that right can a teenager verify that best friend forever okay good all right just checking on that so how do we go about today in today's culture how does our broader society look at that issue of companionship in the BFF sense of the word what are some of the the ways that you choose a BFF or that a BFF chooses you it could be common interests you know, maybe you're both fans of the Denver Broncos and you're like, hey, that's good enough. We can now take that first step, step towards becoming a BFF because we have something in common that we both enjoy doing or watching or a team that we root for. It could be a shared background or shared goals in the future where you find someone, that, again, that sense of having something in common where you're saying, well, we both came from the same state before we moved here. It, it was California for most people in Colorado from what I've seen, right? We, both came, we all came from California, and here we are. We've got that shared history. You begin to talk about that. Maybe it's goals, things that, that you say, oh, you, you want to climb a 14er as well? So do I. And that be, becomes that first step toward becoming a BFF. You know, a lot of times the selection process that people have for companionship is actually quite self-focused, right? So, you know, it, it could be this is a person who I enjoy spending time with or this could be a person who has some tools I'd like to borrow or this is a person who could maybe get me a, uh, a, an advancement at work. You know, there's kind of some some wisdom and strategy in the relationships that we form. There's a transactional nature to a lot of companionship in our world, that type of friendship. And I was thinking, you know, really realistically, you look around the room here, we're, we're all in the uh, child to teenager to, to adult stage in life, but there are some little ones back down in the classrooms who have a very simple set of needs, right? Back in the nursery, you head back, get our baby, Karis, or Ariel. Karis isn't a baby anymore. I got to, okay, come on. More coffee up here. You get Ariel, and she has a very simple set of needs. You know, she needs her diaper changed several times a day. She needs to be fed. She needs that attention and, and, and playtime. And at this point, she's starting to develop some new ways of communicating those needs, She's doing a little bit of signing, and there's some words that, she, that we can decipher. I'm not sure if anyone else can. And so she's in those early stages of not only having that clearly defined set of needs, but also communicating them in a little bit, with a little bit more sophistication than just crying and then having us try to figure out what those needs are. And so we've all been there. I don't know if you can remember back to that stage of your existence, but you used to have a very simple need set and a very simple way of communicating those needs. 
and you would just kick and scream and demand, and, and then your parents would hopefully figure out what your needs were. Well, now fast forward to today, and you look at that person sitting to your left or to your right, their needs are a little bit more complicated than they were back then. And yet they still haven't learned how to communicate those and articulate them any better. They're still kicking and screaming and crying and demanding that the rest of us try to figure out what those needs are and meet them. Unless they've developed some of those adult maturity skills. Well, the companionship type of friendship, that BFF style of friendship that we see so often in our world, is often giving into those very self-centered needs, those very self-focused, real needs, and yet mostly focused on me, my desires, my interests, my background, my goals, and then aligning with anyone, anyone else who will help me to achieve those goals. Yet there's a different level of friendship that we're going to see here in the story of Jonathan and David. Really, this is the kind of friendship that we usually only see in our society between a parent and a child, to be honest. Even in marriages, we don't often see this covenant sort of relationship. Sadly, a lot of the marriage vows today leave out the part about, you know, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part, and they instead put in there, for as long as love shall last. Which basically means as long as you continue to meet my needs, I'll stick with you. But as soon as I'm not feeling that love in the sense of, you make me feel good about me, I might trade you in for a new model. And yet, in our culture, really, that parent-child relationship it's pretty socially taboo to exchange your 14-year-old for that 14-year-old down the road who can mow the lawn a little bit better, right? We, we usually stay committed to our biological offspring. And here in this story, we're going to see what, what may seem strange to us, a, a pure, covenant, loving relationship between two men that is deep, it's committed, it's risky, It's bold, and there's a lot of humility in this story. Really, we're going to see in Jonathan a picture. We're going to find out it's not only David in these books of Samuel who is a man after God's own heart. Jonathan has those same characteristics, and he's able to enter into a covenant relationship that hopefully will challenge us as well in our relationships with fellow believers and with people in our lives to go beyond that companionship level and get to this covenant relationship sort of friendship that God has created us for. So let's read just some of these excerpts here in these chapters. We're going to start in chapter 18, verse 1, and see here that covenant relationship is not something that we humans can do in our own strength. This is a work of God. Verse 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. You'll note right there in that first verse, there's no common interests, similar backgrounds, uh, goals for the future. There's no what's-in-it-for-me approach in Jonathan. This is a knitting together of two souls. And it kind of comes from a strange perspective. We're like, well, where did that come from? You know, Jesse, the son of Jesse, this David is talking to Saul, and suddenly the soul of Jonathan is knit to David, and Jonathan loves him as his own soul. 
What is that kind of love that we're talking about? Jesus talks about this sort of love when he summarizes the entire Old Testament. One of the Sadducees comes up to him, says, hey, hey, master, hey, teacher, what is the greatest of the commandment? If you were to summarize Jesus for us, the entire Old Testament, what would you say is the most important commandment out of all those? And Jesus responds, the, great, the first and greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second is equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In this, all the law and the prophets is summed up. So J- Jesus is saying, if you want to know what the Old Testament about is about, two things. Number one, love God. Number two, love others in the same way that you love yourself. So do you, do you love yourself? Okay, Maybe an abstract question. Did you open the refrigerator today and put food into your own mouth? Okay, you love yourself. Did you go to bed last night at some point, maybe too late, and lay down and get refreshed? You are caring for your own needs. You love yourself. Even if you may not have mushy, warm feelings toward yourself, even if you might see some things in the mirror that you're not super happy about, you love yourself by meeting your own needs. And Jesus is saying, treat others that same way where you are looking out for their needs, not only for your own needs. That's how, how Paul says it in Philippians. And so we see now Jonathan demonstrating this same kind of love that Jesus talks about toward David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Verse 2, And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. Because he loved him as his own soul. What's a covenant? We are not familiar with this because we live in a transactional world. You know, you sign a contract that says, if you do this, I will do this. I will pay you X amount of money and you will transfer said asset to me. That's all transactional. And we bring that into our companionship style relationships with one another. A covenant is deeper than that. A covenant is more binding A covenant is like a contract in some ways, and yet it's a more binding commitment, and there's a divine aspect to this. In fact, you go back to Genesis chapter 15, you see this covenant God makes with a man named Abram before his name is changed to Abraham. And there are animal sacrifices involved, and you've got a flaming pot and smoke passing between that God himself sealing the deal and making a binding covenant with Abraham about the future of his people called by God to be as plentiful as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heaven, to be blessed, to be a blessing so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. That's the basis of covenant. It's something that God originates, that God orchestrates, that God enables, that God empowers. And that's the type of relationship that Jonathan is binding himself to with David, loving him as his own soul. What does that cause Jonathan to do in practicality? Verse 4, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, 
And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Think about those not insignificant items that Jonathan takes off of his own person and places on David. That robe. This is the crown prince of the nation of Israel. His dad is the king. And he's saying, you know what? I take my future, my destiny, and I I give it to you, David. He takes his own armor, his defense, his protection, and he becomes vulnerable as he places that on David. He takes his offensive weapons, his sword, his bow, his belt. He hands that over to David so that he can go out and do military exploits and the parades of women will sing songs about David, not Jonathan. Saul has killed his thousands. David is tens of thousands. David is the one who gets the credit, the prestige, the status. And Jonathan willingly and joyfully lays that aside for David's benefit and gain. Does that seem unusual to you? Does this seem out of the ordinary when you see a friendship like that, this this covenant sort of friendship? I hope it looks beyond ordinary. This is extraordinary. I hope it looks beyond natural. This is supernatural. This is the kind of work that only God can do in a human heart. We all are like babies crying for our own needs to be met, saying, recognize me, give me status, help me to retain my power. I want to attain my goals, my objectives. I'm climbing a ladder, maybe stepping on some fingers on the way. And what we're seeing in the heart of Jonathan is something entirely different. It's a work of God. That he lays aside his future, his status, his prestige, his power, his influence, And he gives that all over to Jonathan. Jesus gives us a commandment that Larry read last week in his sermon in John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus commanded that type of love to exist not just in this extraordinary sense between Jonathan and David, but this type of covenant relationship is to be the norm in the body of Christ. That person from church that rubs you the wrong way, Jesus commands us, take off your robe, your sword, your armor, and place it on them. Don't look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. The same way that I loved you, Jesus says, that's how you should love one another. And he goes on to explain, a real friend is this, you lay down your life for others. Covenant friendship is what Jesus commands us. And the good news is that as Jesus demonstrates that covenant friendship with us, he also empowers us and equips us to put it into practice. So he shows us the way. He enables us to live in this new way of living that we're getting a glimpse of here in the life of Jonathan. Well, what else, what else do we know about this covenant relationship? And if you read the rest of chapter 18, that jealousy of Saul is beginning to rise up. He's taking that song that the ladies are singing as the warriors are coming back. He's forgetting all that he knows about Hebrew poetry where really they're just saying, Saul and David are both awesome. There's a lot of dead Philistines. And he's taking this in a distorted way as if it's a comparison and a contrast between him, himself, and 
David. And there's jealousy. He's attempting to kill David. That comes into play in Jonathan and David's friendship later. But time and again, the, the legitimacy of David's anointing as the future king is established by Saul's own son, Jonathan. By Saul's own daughter, Michael, who ends up being David's wife. By the prophet of Israel, Samuel, who anoints him. So there's no question as to whether God has chosen and appointed David to lead his people. What I see in the heart of Jonathan is that he's in tune with the purposes of God. When he looks at David, it's not just this self-abasement, this denial of self, and saying, you know, I, I want, I'm going I'm to be a doormat, David, and you can have all my stuff. It's that Jonathan is getting a glimpse of the heart of God. Jonathan has an understanding of the purposes and plans of God. I don't know if he has explicit knowledge of the visit of Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint David, and yet God has been working in his heart, joining his soul together with David, loving him as he loves himself, and his actions are in line with the purposes of God. He's saying, David, I know the plans that God has for you, and I am on board and supportive fully with those plans, and I will even at great personal risk and cost, support the plans of God for His greater glory in your life. Help you become the person that He's created you to be. And so as this story, this drama escalates between Saul now, who's still on the throne, and David, who is the anointed king, who is to be on the throne, and Jonathan mixed up in the middle of that, Jonathan now at at great personal risk takes a bold step in this friendship. It's not just the symbolic laying aside his robe, his sword, his armor, but he really risks his life now in chapters 19 and 20. So let's read the beginning of chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. That's some risk-taking. The son of the king, going to the king, confronting him with some hard truth. And it's effective. And he changes his father's heart, at least for for that moment, that hour of that day. You know, you see in these chapters... Saul on this manic depressive swing, you know, where now, okay, yep, you're right, Jonathan, let's bring David in again. Nope, changed my mind, let's kill him. And he's going back and forth. 
as he's tormented and, and in anguish. And, and we do hear in chapter 20 him explicitly addressing this issue of the, the future of the throne. So this is on his mind. But that, that covenant friendship, we already saw the humility as Jonathan, in the act of loving David as he loved his own soul, taking off each of those items of symbolizing his future, his destiny, his hope, his power, his strength, and humbly laying those on David. Now we see the boldness as well, where he's willing to, to take a risk and go to the king, confront the king on behalf of his friend. And really, you know, it, it even gets more personal for Jonathan. This isn't just the king, it's his dad. And there's times in our covenant relationships with one another in the body of Christ, there's always humility that's required, and then there are those times when boldness is required. And there's times when it may even clash with our families of origin. You know, and those loyalties come into question. Jesus made some extreme statements about love for God in comparison to love for family. That our love for our biological family should look like hatred in comparison to this all-consuming, powerful love for God that consumes every part of who we are. That's how great our love for God should be. That's how bold we should be in our love for God and our love for one another, demonstrating that we are following His commands, walking in His footsteps. And so Jonathan is less concerned about his dad's opinions than he is about the heart of God. He makes this bold move. And it reminds me of that verse that I quoted from Philippians 2 where Paul instructs the Philippian church through the Holy Spirit speaking through him, not just to them, but to the Aurora church today as well. Philippians 2, 4, Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus is that perfect example of humility, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, emptied himself, took on the nature of a servant. He was obedient even to the point of death. Jesus is our example of what humility looks like. That boldness plus humility in that beautiful blend that really changes the world. And He's not just our model and our example. He's the one that enables us to follow in this extraordinary, supernatural way of living. You know, we can't do this on our own. It's not in our nature to say, I'm going to die to self and live for you. That's only something that God can draw us to, that through Jesus, through His Son, through His Holy Spirit working within us, we are equipped and enabled to walk in those steps, denying self and following after Him. It's natural to look out for your own interests. It's supernatural to also look out to the interests of others. So finally we get to chapter 20, really the climax of this story of Jonathan and his covenant relationship with David. David now fled from Naioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. 
Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Jonathan's still holding out hope for a reconciliation, a restored relationship. David really having the pulse on what's actually happening in the kingdom. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do it for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Do you understand the test that David is proposing? There's a feast that David should be at, but he's going to not show up at the feast and send Jonathan to find out how the king responds to that. And that will be an indication of whether Saul is still committed to killing David or whether Jonathan is correct in that David will be safe and his dad's not out to kill him anymore. Verse 8, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. What I, how I interpret this passage that's to come. Now, if, if you've probably heard this story before if you've been around church for any period of time. They're going to set up a way of not only getting the information from Saul at the palace during the feast, but then also communicating that message from Jonathan to David. And so the elaborate plan that we'll, we'll read here, they're going to go out in the field. David's going to hide behind a rock. Jonathan's going to shoot some arrows. He's going to bring a, a little boy with him that, that helps him with his armor. And if he says, hey, the arrows are beyond you. Keep going. That's the sign to David, get out of here. Keep going. Don't look back. Your life is in danger. But if he says to the boy, hey, the arrows are closer this way. Come back this way a little bit. Then that will be the sign to David, coast is clear. Come on out. So, so they go through this whole plan. At the end of the chapter, they end up over by the rock embracing, saying goodbye, kissing, dem- you know, expressing their love, covenant friendship for one another. And, and as I read this, I'm like, well, why did they go through the whole thing with the arrows if they're going to end up over by the rock anyway? Why not just be like, I'll meet you out at the rock and let you know what Saul said. So as I've, as I've read this, studied it, looked at it, I think we've just seen some clues that there's an extreme risk. Again, this boldness that Jonathan is taking. He's, going to, he's basically functioning as a spy now. He's going to his, before his dad to find out his dad's intentions. And it's going to be extremely risky of him to now go convey that information about the, the marked man that the king has determined to take the life of 
Now the son of the king who's being scrutinized, his dad's aware of what is happening, how is he going to sneak out of the palace to get this message to David? And that's the very question David asks. How are you going to, who's going to bring the message to me? And Jonathan says, I will take that risk. I will bring the message. Go out by the rock in the field. I have a plan. Verse 12, Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, once again, an indication of the risk that Jonathan is undertaking. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Who is he? Who is included in that phrase, all the enemies of David, that Jonathan is seeing into the plans of God? Saying all those enemies of David are, are going to be cut off from the earth forever. That includes his own dad. There's, there's a real good picture of the heart of Jonathan, that he's more committed to the purposes of God, to the greater glory of God, to the kingdom of God and his plans than he is to his own family dynasty. And yet he's, he's requesting of David that that steadfast love that God demonstrates would be what defines the covenant relationship between Jonathan and David and their descendants forever. And so there on, in verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And here's the plan. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, be, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. There's a covenant. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Day one. Saul did not say anything, for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. Could come to dinner. He's ceremonially unclean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty again. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. 
He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. My brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers for this reason. He has not come to the king's table. Saul's not buying it. His anger was kindled against Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a... Insert Hebrew swear word. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan's using the same tactic he did in chapter 19 that was so effective back then. Why should he be put to death, Dad? What has he done? But he doesn't get far into his speech. <clears throat> Verse 33, Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. It's kind of ironic that Saul is saying, this David, the son of Jesse, is a threat to your dynasty. And then he takes a spear and almost kills his own son. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Now this angry, irrational outburst has been directed toward Jonathan, and Jonathan gets a glimpse of what David has seen all along. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food for the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. I don't know if that's firearm safety approved. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? That was their code message that they had set up to say it's not safe David keep running and Jonathan called after the boy hurry be quick do not stay so Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master but the boy knew nothing he just thought it was a day out at the archery range only Jonathan and David knew the matter And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city, as if Jonathan has not taken enough risk already, confronting his dad, almost being speared for that risk, now going out to convey the message using this cryptic method of the arrows and the, and the message there to protect his own safety. Now he takes an additional risk. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. They kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. That's their last time seeing each other face to face that is a preview though of of second samuel chapter 9 when david asks ziba 
one of Saul's household that is still alive at that point in the story. Is there, are there any of Jonathan's descendants still alive? And Ziba says, yeah, there is Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. And David says, bring him here. He's going to live in the palace, in the king's palace. He's going to eat at the king's table all the rest of the days of his life. And Jonathan, uh, David, fulfills that covenant with Jonathan by <clears throat> maintaining that forever commitment between those two households, the household of David and Jonathan. It's a remarkable story of covenant friendship. And, I, and the point I want us to leave with today is that there's more than camaraderie. There's more than just a what-you-have-in-common sort of friendship. There's a very uncommon covenant relationship that God desires us to demonstrate as believers within the body of Christ. It begins in our own household. Not just parent to child, but also husband to wife. Where we say, this isn't a what's-in-it-for-me transactional relationship. This is a till death do us part forever commitment to each of us taking off the robe and the sword and placing it on the other and saying, I see the plans that God has for your your life and I'm on board with those plans even at great personal risk, even when boldness is required, even when denial of self is the daily norm. I'm committed to you becoming the person that God has created you to be. And it goes beyond that to the covenant relationships within the body of Christ as our Lord and Savior tells us in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, not a suggestion, not a recommendation, a commandment from our Lord, a new commandment in the New Testament. I thought all the commandments were done in the Old Testament. You know, we chiseled them on stone and stuck them out in front of our, you know, uh, Court, court, uh, courtrooms and, and our schools, right? The Ten Commandments. Jesus is making up new commandments in the New Testament. And those are binding. He says this, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. <clears throat> now again, love not as the world defines love, not like romantic feelings, not being Twitter-pated, not butterflies and goosebumps. That's all me loving me, me loving sensations that I'm having. That's, that's all our world knows of love. But when they look <clears throat> at us, that covenant relationship type of love that looks like Jesus' love, it's a love that says, I will serve you. I will take the towel and basin and wash your feet. I will take my sin upon myself and go to the cross and pay the price for you. You know, Not that we are the Messiah in each other's lives, but He does command us to take up our cross daily and follow after Him. There is a self-sacrificial aspect to the Christian love that our Savior and Lord calls us to, a covenant commitment that goes beyond just what do we have in common? What's our shared experiences? What are our future goals? What can I get out of you? And it's much deeper than that. It says, what are the plans of God in your life 
And how can I equip and empower and enable and release you to become all that God has created you to be, even at a personal cost, even when my interests are not met? What are your interests, and how can I meet those? Instead of two babies kicking and screaming and crying and demanding that their needs met, you've got now two adults that are looking at each other saying, well, what are your needs? How can I meet those? And the other mature believers say, oh, well, thank you. You're a blessing to me. And how can I meet your needs? And in that beautiful, harmonious way of relating and covenant relationship, the ironic thing is both people's needs get met in a much more effective way than two babies crying and screaming and demanding that their own needs get met. Can we pray today? Maybe this is a call that God is giving to you in your marriage, in your relationships with other believers, maybe in your own biological family. Why don't we stand together and pray that God will help us to move from that companionship sort of friendship to a covenant relationship that Jesus models for us. Lord God, we thank you for the great love that you've demonstrated to us. We thank you for the way that you met us in our weakness, in our great need, not when we deserved your love, but while we were yet sinners, you reached us. We thank you that your presence is here today. Thank you that you're a miracle-working God, that you're still doing things like you did in Jonathan's heart to knit him together with David, to give him a glimpse of your kingdom purposes and to enable him to follow in that path. And we pray for that in each of our lives, God, that you'd help us to move beyond just coincidental connections with other people, to really expect those divine appointments that you set up. That, Lord, we wouldn't have companionship based on common interests, but we would have that uncommon covenant relationship that's based on your greater glory. God, that we would move just from looking for people that we can have fun with or have shared experiences with to have a deeper desire of true fulfillment, that abundant life that you've created us for. Lord, that you'd help us to reject the transactional nature of relationships within the body of Christ. Not just mutual benefit, but mutual transformation as we get a glimpse of who you are and what you are doing in the lives of others. And then we build up and edify and equip in a way that you are glorified. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit within our hearts. We pray that you would fill us, change us, transform us, challenge us in your presence, Lord, to to yield those areas of our hearts that we've retained control of, that it would define our relationships, that we would really obey that commandment to show the world that we are, are your disciples by the way we love one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.